It is good to be with you all. I appreciate so much the opportunity to come and be with you this week. Uh, We're going to be looking at a lesson tonight that will somewhat set the stage for the remainder of our time here together this week and to Sunday. Uh, Not that all of the lessons are going to just flow one right from another, but all of them will be related in that they all will talk about things pertaining to the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit works among us today. Acts chapter 2 in verse 38 is a very familiar verse for most of us here this evening. I, I'm, I'm assuming that uh, because you're here on a Wednesday night to hear God's Word proclaimed. I doubt this is the first time that most of you have been in this building and have heard the gospel preached. And so you know what Acts 2.38 says, or at least a portion of it. Uh, As is the case with a lot of verses, and I'm not saying this to say it's wrong to quote a part of a verse. We'll find several times in scriptures as Jesus and the apostles quote passages. They won't quote the entire passage, but the, the part of a verse or a passage that is pertinent to what they're talking about at the time. But, but we do sometimes quote partial verses, and Acts 2.38 is one of those that we sometimes quote partially. We will talk about Peter's response to the question that is asked in verse 37, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And of course Peter responds, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And a lot of times we stop right there, and... Maybe it's because we're just emphasizing what one must do to respond to the gospel. But Peter doesn't stop there. He goes on to say that those who are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he continues on into chapter into verse 39 saying that the promise is not only for them, but for their children, for their children's children, for, he doesn't say children's children's children, but he gives that, that, uh, that point to all who are afar off. That is, on everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord and surrenders to Christ in baptism, they will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what we're going to talk about tonight is what that gift is. I think all of us would understand it's a wonderful promise. Even if we don't, don't know much about what he's promising, if it's a promise made by God to us that if we will obey him, we will receive this gift, well, I know right away that that's a gift I want. When you look in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, there are a number of letters written to several churches. And at the end of each of those letters, the Lord will say, To he who overcomes, I will... And then he names a number of blessings. So one of them, he'll say, I, I will give, give them a white stone with a name written on it. And there's a lot said about that white stone and what it might be. I don't know what it is. But I've made the point that if the Lord wants to give me that white stone, then it's something I want. It's a gift I desire from the Lord. And so if we don't know anything about this gift of the Holy Spirit and what it might be, we should know that we would desire it. It's something that we want. It's a wonderful promise that we've been given. But I think we can know something more about it. I feel like at this point I need to pause and say, I don't want to come across 
so arrogant as to say that people all throughout the years have discussed the gift of the Holy Spirit and have come up with different ideas, and, but I figured it out. So I'm here to tell you what I've figured out. I'll tell you, there's a lot I still haven't figured out. But for years and years, I would read this passage and I would think about that gift and I would hear different ideas given and I could say, well, I see that, but none were just really satisfactory to me. Not that it was trying to satisfy some desire that I had that I wanted this particular gift, but I could see some problems with certain answers that were given concerning the gift of the Spirit. But I always felt felt like it should be easier than this. As much as the Bible has to say about the Holy Spirit, it shouldn't be that hard to figure out what the gift of the Spirit is and how the Spirit dwells in us and, and how the Spirit moves. Just everything concerning the Spirit, it shouldn't be that difficult. And a number of years ago, I listened to a lesson that a brother down in South Florida preached. And he had a really novel approach, and it's what we're going to look at tonight to start with. And that is, let's all start in Acts chapter 2. Because the discussion concerning the gift of the Spirit doesn't begin in Acts chapter 2. It begins much earlier. And we might be thinking about John the Baptist. Well, we're going to look at John the Baptist tonight, but it doesn't start with John the Baptist. The Old Testament scriptures have a good bit to say about the promise of the Spirit that is being spoken of here in this passage. So by going back and looking at that, hopefully we can see more concerning the promise that God made concerning the Holy Spirit and help us to understand. So when you're talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit, you'll have people who who believe that that means you'll be able to speak in tongues. I was studying with a fellow a couple of years ago, and he was of the persuasion that if you have not spoken in tongues, as they would describe tongues, not the languages of Acts chapter 2, but if you're not spoken in tongues, then you're not saved. You have not received the gift of the Spirit, and therefore you haven't had your sins washed away. And that's what a lot of people believe, that the gift of tongues, or the gift of the Spirit there is related to tongues. Some would say, well, it's just any kind of miracle that you might be able to perform, such as what we see the apostles and others later in the book of Acts performing. Is that the gift of the Spirit? Some, you know, even the expression, the gift of the Spirit, is it the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that's the gift, or is it a gift that the Holy Spirit is giving? So when you have all those kinds of questions being asked, you can see how there might be some confusion surrounding what the gift of the Holy Spirit might be. But as I said earlier, I don't believe it should be that, that confusing. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 in a different context, but when Paul says God is not the author of confusion, that's in every aspect of everything that the Lord does. And so I don't believe we should be confused by this passage. But if we want to understand it, I do think we need to go back. And we need to go back to the beginning. And the beginning is not Acts chapter 2, as we said earlier. We're going to go further back than that. We're going to go further back than Matthew chapter 4. We're going to go back into the Old Testament scriptures. We could go back as far as Genesis 1 because the Holy Spirit is present in Genesis 1 as we read about God creating the heavens and the earth. But we're not going to look at all of the work of the Spirit throughout the ages. We want to focus our attention on some things that are said concerning this specific time that we're looking at in Acts chapter 2 when the Spirit would be poured out, when that gift of the Spirit, the promise of the Spirit would be given. And so when we come to the prophets, we're going to go through 
And we're going to look at a number. Now, this isn't every place that you could go and look, but we're going to look at a few, and we're going to begin in Isaiah chapter 32. I would love to go through and just read a lot of what's going on in 31 and 32, but we're going to do some summarizing, and then you'll just need to do some homework on your own and go back and look at these passages in more depth to see that you know Isaiah is primarily talking to Israel and Judah about the judgment that is coming on their nation because of sin. So judgment, judgment, judgment. Just a lot of judgment language in the book of Isaiah. But when you come to chapter 32, notice verse, and even the first part of this passage, we're, we're still reading about the consequences of judgment. We'll begin reading in verse 12. People shall mourn upon their breasts, For the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, on the land of my people will come up thorns and briars, yes, on all the happy homes in the joyous city, because the palaces will be forsaken, the bustling city will be deserted, the forts and towers will become lairs forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. So the picture that's given in those verses is just desolation. It's a desolate uninhabited place where the wild beasts have taken over until verse 15 until the spirit is poured out on uh, until the spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is counted as a forest and then he says verse 16 justice will dwell in the wilderness righteousness remain in the fruitful field And so you see this picture of desolation until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high and then comes the restoration. If you fast forward to Isaiah 43, again you'll see very similarly here that the Lord has been talking about what He is going to do with His people. But then He's going to talk about the redemption that will come. And in chapter 43, beginning in verse 28, we read, Therefore I will profane the princes of the sanctuary, and I will give Jacob to the curse and Israel to reproaches. So we started there at the end of chapter 43, because I want you to see what God's going to do regarding judgment. He's going to profane the princes of the sanctuary, give Jacob to the curse, Israel to reproaches, Chapter 44, verse 1, Yet hear now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessings on your offspring. They will spring up among the grass like willows by the watercourses. One will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write with his hand, the Lord's, and the name, and name himself by the name of Israel. Do you see in the midst of that there in verse 3, For I will pour water on him who is thirsty, floods on the dry ground. That's where they had been, thirsty and dry. But he says, I'm going to pour out my spirit. I'll pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessings on your offspring. So you have the same picture that we saw back in chapter 32 where God's going to have his people carried away captive. The land will be desolate until 
His spirit is poured out. And then comes the restoration. When you look in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36 and 37, I wish we had the time to go through and look at those chapters, but both of them use the expression, I will put my spirit in you. Chapter 37 is a, a passage, if you know much about the book of Ezekiel, you might would remember chapter 37 where the dry bones are there in the valley. Uh, Ezekiel says they are very dry, but those bones come to life. Flesh is put back on them. The Lord's Spirit is breathed into them. And all that came about at the prophesying of Ezekiel. And he speaks of putting his spirit within him. But I want to look in chapter 39 with you at what is said there. Ezekiel 39. Again, Ezekiel, his main message, judgment to come. Ezekiel himself and those who are with him in battle, they've already experienced much of the discipline of the Lord and being carried away captive. But there's more to come. The the city uh, will be destroyed. But in chapter 39, they're coming uh, to the end of verse 25. He says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Now I will bring back the captives of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name after they have borne their shame and all their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me, when they dwelt safely in their own land, and no one made them afraid. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them out of their enemies' lands and hallowed in them in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who sent them into captivity among the nations, but also brought them back to their land and left none of them captive any longer. And I will not hide my face from them any more, for I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, says the Lord God. So again, I know this is somewhat redundant from what we saw in Isaiah 32, what we saw in Isaiah 44, and now here in Ezekiel 39. But I want you to notice the redundancy. I want you to notice that this isn't just something that was mentioned one time and never thought of again by several of the prophets over periods of time that you know, Ezekiel and Isaiah didn't do their work in the same time. And we're going to look now at the prophet Joel, uh, who is a little earlier than Ezekiel. But Joel is probably the, the one that we are most familiar with because he's the one that Peter quotes in Acts chapter 2 and talking about what's going on there. But Joel 2 gives us a couple of things that we didn't see with Isaiah or Ezekiel. Isaiah and Ezekiel talk about what God is going to do in bringing His people back and restoring them to their land. But Joel is going to give us somewhat of a time frame of when that is going to occur. So the people knew that God had made a promise, but when is God going to fulfill His promise? Well, in verse 28 of Joel chapter 2, He writes, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And so he speaks of those days. He speaks of the time, but he also gives them some signs. He says, when these things happen, then you will know that the Lord is doing what He has promised to do. But the emphasis here in Joel, if you back up and read 
the book up to this point and then go on into chapter 3, it's not primarily about the fact that there are going to be some people coming in the future who's going to be able to perform miracles, speak in tongues and do various things. The emphasis is on God bringing his people out of captivity. This is just a, a, a help with the time frame of when that's going. How do you know when God's going to do that? Well, he's going to give signs. He's going to confirm that this is the time that I have chosen to restore my people. And so we know that Joel 2, verses 28 through 32, in verse 32, it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, Peter ties that specifically to what's going on in Acts chapter 2. Now, some might want to say, well, Isaiah and Ezekiel and what they're talking about, they're talking about God bringing the people out of Babylon back to Jerusalem and and re-inhabiting the land out of captivity. Well, that's what Joel's talking about. If you keep reading, sometimes the chapter... You know, the end of verse 32, he speaks of the remnant whom the Lord calls, and then in verse 1 of chapter 3, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem... So he's not talking primarily, and so often in the Old Testament prophets you'll have a prophecy that does have a, somewhat of an immediate fulfillment with physical Israel, but looking to a future fulfillment in Christ. And that's exactly what we have here. And, and we know that again in part because Peter says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. But what was Joel talking about? He was talking about God bringing back the captives, restoring the people, restoring the nation. And so in all of these prophecies that we've looked at, and time won't permit us to look at everything that we could, but can you see that pattern of judgment that's coming because of sin, captivity, being in bondage because of their sin, but then God coming and delivering them out of that bondage. I will pour out my spirit, and they would be restored. The land would be restored as well as the people. So that when you come to the New Testament and John the Baptist, we, we sometimes think that John and Jesus, when they began to preach, that this is just all new, you know, new stuff that nobody's ever heard before. Well, when John was preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, that wasn't new. The prophets have been saying there's coming a time when God would restore his people. Had there been somewhat of a restoration? You might say it's begun, but you read the book of Malachi, the very last book of the Old Testament, and you see not a lot of restoring being done there. The people haven't come out of their sins. They're still in that same old cycle of half-hearted service to God, and God was ready to to cast them away. But God in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, He points to a time coming that God was going to send Elijah, and He was going to prepare the way of the Lord. And of course, we know that's fulfilled in John the Baptist. So here He is in Matthew chapter 3. And and what is He preaching here? Well, He's preaching, preaching repentance. And notice with me in verse 10, He says, And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, what would you say about that phrase? Would you say that 
that's judgment. God is ready to judge his people. He, the axe is laid to the root of the tree. What's going to happen with those unfruitful trees? They're going to be thrown into the fire. You drop down in verse 12. His winnowing fan is in his hand. He will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. In that verse, you have two things. You have both the judgment, but also salvation. You have the wheat being gathered into the barn, but what happens to the chaff? It's burned up with unquenchable fire. So, two verses that talk about fire in a context that's obviously, that, that's God's judgment on the unfruitful, on the sinners, those who would not follow Him. If you back up a verse, verse 11 John says, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, some people want to make that fire baptism some good thing. And I realize Peter talks about our our fiery trials, which do help us, but you've got to take the word fire here in a way that's not used elsewhere in in the... conversation to make it mean something good but if we understand it as judgment and some of you may be missing it here in if you're reading from the the american standard or some other translation it may not have fire but it would be there in luke chapter 3 but it seems that he's talking about there's going to be a judgment and there's going to be those who can be spared from the judgment so that same promise of being brought out of captivity, being brought out of bondage, being saved from the judgment to come is being carried over here in John's teachings as well. So we come to the, the New Testament Scriptures. And as the people are listening to John and even the apostles who later we're going to look at in just a moment are listening to Jesus, when he speaks of the Holy Spirit... Do you think that they're immediately thinking about performing miracles and speaking? In t- when John says you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, immersed in the Holy Spirit, is there anything in the Old Testament to, to help us to think that the apostles understood some miraculous time that's to come? And I realize Joel too does speak about miracles that they would perform. But the other passages that we looked at all had to do with a restoring of God's kingdom and His people. And that's the message that John and Jesus are both preaching. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. God's ready to, to bring His kingdom into existence. And so as we come to Acts chapter 1... And again, we want to be thinking as much as we can. Sometimes it's not possible... We're wanting to think like the apostles. What are they thinking about? What do they understand? Now, sometimes, and I'll tell you that I've been guilty of this. We come to Acts chapter 1, and we read verses 5 and 6, or maybe we just read verse 6. And we make this observation. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And what we say is, those apostles, they still don't get it. They've been thinking about this physical kingdom this whole time. They've been trying to prepare for for some earthly reign of Christ. 
And here, even as Jesus is about to ascend into heaven, they're still focused on the physical. And I've said that before myself. But if you back up in chapter 1 and read all of this in its context, I don't think that's the conclusion we should come to. First of all, we read that Jesus was teaching in verse 1, verse 2, until the day in which he was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. And and that was a a period of about 40 days he will talk about there in verse 3. And as he's teaching his apostles during this time of 40 days after his resurrection... What does it say at the end of verse 3? But that he was speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So here Jesus, after his resurrection, 40 days is a long time. We're going to have a meeting that's, i got to count, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, five days. We're going to be here five days, just an hour a day. For 40 days, there, and I doubt they got together for an hour and Jesus talked a little bit and said, all right, we'll come back tomorrow at the same time. Now, I don't know that the text is telling us that he spent all day every day for 40 days. To, but Jesus is impressing something upon these men. He knows he's about to leave. He's spending this time and he's speaking to them of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And then they're assembled together. And he tells them in verse 4, Don't depart from Jerusalem. Wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You've heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. What would come to mind? What are they thinking about? Oh, we're going to get to speak in tongues? Oh, we're going to get to heal people? We're going to get to raise people from the... What are they thinking about? I think verse 6 tells us what they're thinking about. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And all the time I've been saying, look, they still don't get it. They still don't get it. And I read it now after looking back at what the prophets had said that God was going to do when he pours out his spirit. I look and say, They got it exactly. They understood what Jesus was talking about. Now, when I say exactly, understand, they still had a lot to learn. But they tying restoration, the restoration of God's people to the pouring out of the Spirit, to the baptism of the Spirit, I think they got it exactly what Jesus had been teaching them. He said, well, I'm not convinced yet. I'm still not convinced. Sometimes when we've taught something a certain way for long enough, we come to think, well, that's, that's it. It's got to be that way. But if you keep reading, there's, there's more that we can see that I, I think will help us to understand what God intended when he speaks of pouring out his spirit and giving us a gift. So as you look in Acts chapter 2, we come to the passage where we first began which is where Peter says, repent and let every one of you be baptized. But if you back up just a little bit, after talking about Jesus being raised in verse 32, he says in verse 33, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heaven, but he himself says, 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. In that same context, he speaks of the promise twice. Back up in verse 33, he speaks of the promise of the Spirit. And now he says, this promise is to you. What promise? Well, the promise of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit that would be given. Now, I want to look with you at something here. So here you have... Peter telling us this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. This is God bringing his people out of captivity and bringing them into his kingdom. And he tells them here how you can enter that kingdom in verses 38 and 39. But I'd like for us to compare what he says in Acts 2.38 to what he says in Acts 3 in verse 19. Would I think everybody would agree if we were in more of a Bible class setting, I might would ask you, do you think if Peter is preaching the gospel in Acts chapter 3 that he's going to preach the same message, the same basic message that he preached in Acts chapter 2? He's not going to preach a different gospel. He's not going to preach a different way that you can become a child of God, is he? He's going to do the same thing. Uh, the answer would be yes. He's not going to preach something different the next chapter than he preached. In. Now the words could be a little different. And sometimes as you go through the book of Acts, you see certain things emphasized where other things are not. But the message is the same. All of it. You put it together, it's one complete message that is the same. But I want you to see the comparisons here. So the repent in Acts 2.38, that's pretty easy to see that that compares with the repent in Acts 3.19. So all of them know we've got to repent. We've got to change. We can't keep living the same life for self. We've got to change and live a life for God. So repentance is needed. Now, he says next that every one of you has to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, in 3.19, he says you need to be converted. You say, now, is baptism and being converted, is that the same thing? I think it has to be. And if you go to Romans chapter 6, and we won't take the time to do a deep dive into Romans 6 tonight, but Romans 6 is one place that you can go and look at a detailed account that absolutely it is a conversion that takes place when one is baptized. That old man of sin is buried and comes into contact with that blood of Christ that just as Christ was buried, just as Christ died and was raised from the dead, that we can be raised to walk in newness of life. Galatians 2.20 may be a, a really good passage to, to think in relation to this where Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. What does he mean by that? He means I have died to self. When did that happen? In baptism. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And then he talks about the new life that I live now in the flesh. I, I don't live by the way that I want to live, but I live for him who, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's a conversion. That's a complete change of life. And so you see that in baptism, 
that one is converted from that old person of sin to being this new creation. Now he says when you're baptized in Acts 2.38 that you will receive the remission of sins. It's for unto the remission of sins. Now in 3.19 he says that your sins may be blotted out. That's not hard to see that that corresponds, doesn't it? If your sins are forgiven, if they've been remitted, then they've been blotted out. God doesn't count them against us anymore. As Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far the Lord has removed my sins from me. What a beautiful thought that that can take place. And then lastly, Acts 2.38, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 3.19, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And if we keep on reading into verse 20, and that He may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of the restoration of all things. The restoration of all things. The restoration of me has occurred right here. But there's coming a time when God's going to restore all things. And, and He's pointing to that. But, but can you see the, how this lines up? And He's teaching the same thing. So that if you want, what is the gift of the Spirit? What should we hope to receive? I've heard in the past and up to the point that trying to put all this together, the one thing that I was told one time that made some sense to me salvation that's the the gift of salvation and i still think i think that's i think that's an accurate statement we receive salvation at the point that we respond to the gospel and that we're baptized but but i don't know that salvation from sin fully expresses what we receive from the spirit the gift of the spirit the gift that god gives us when we respond to the gospel but the idea of, of restoration, and, and I don't think you have to use that word. It's a word that, that Paul Peter uses here in Acts 3. Or times of refreshing, that's the phrase he uses. But it's not just about having sins forgiven and now being able to stand before God sinless. It's about becoming a new person with new focus, with new goals, with... Uh, just everything about our life is new. And we're part of a new kingdom that the Lord has established. Now, I understand it's 2,000 years uh, since it was established there on the day of Pentecost. Uh, but as we come in, you know, it's new to us. And, and it's, a, it's a process that God continues throughout our life that He wants us to be restored. God, in Genesis chapter 1, He created man in His image, verses 26 and 27. At the end of chapter 1, verse 31, the relationship between God and man was very good. But you come to chapter 3, and that image is marred. It's not the same. And from that point forward, man is no longer walking in the image and the likeness of God. But when Jesus came and shed His blood so that we could be forgiven of sins, again, it's more than just saying, all right, I'm, I'm not going to count you guilty of sin anymore. You can be forgiven. You can now be in, given entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Look with me in the book of Colossians, chapter 3. Paul writing here to the, the church at Colossae is writing to them about a process that, that should have already taken place, but sadly he's having to remind them of some things. And 
He tells them in verse 1, Colossians 3 and verse 1, If you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And he's going on to talk about the things that we're to put off, the things of this world that should be put off. But then in verse 10, he says, you've put off those things, but verse 10, and have put on the new man who is renewed in the knowledge, in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. I read that badly, so let me read it again so that uh, I'm getting used to my new glasses. Uh, but and have, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Restoration. You know, it's not just about being in a, in a better place, with a better life, with a better hope. All those things are true. But it's really more about being recreated in the image of God. When that relationship at the end of Genesis 1 was very good and that was lost and Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, they were no longer in the presence of God, I don't know that we appreciate what was lost that day. And if we don't appreciate what was lost that day, then we'll never appreciate what is found when we respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ and we receive that gift of the Holy Spirit. I don't think the gift of the Holy Spirit is completed when we're baptized and we're raised to walk in newness of life. I don't think it's that one time, boom, there, it's over. As we go on through this week, we're going to talk, at a num- talk about a number of ways that our life should be transformed and how that happens. How does it come about that we can be the, the new creation that we're supposed to be? How do we receive all of those blessings that God has in store for us as a renewed part of his people. Well, we're going to look at that tomorrow night when we look at the power of the word and what God's word can do for us. But when you think about Acts 2.38 and that gift of the Spirit being connected with the idea of restoration, it has been amazing to me, and, and maybe you'll find this true for yourselves as you continue reading through your New Testament and the promises that are made there's just a number of things that begin to, to hit a little bit differently than they did before. And when I read it now, it, it just seems to mean more than it did before. If you look with me in Titus chapter 3, in Titus chapter 3, in verse 4, he says, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, But according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That just means a little bit more to me now than it used to. I mean, as I read it before, I understood, well, He's talking about the washing of, that's baptism. Yes, I believe it is baptism. But appreciate the words that Paul uses. 
He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly. Uh, The gift was given. The gift was given graciously. And the gift of the Holy Spirit has the power to completely transform our lives. Before we become a Christian... You know, and then and then we come become a Christian. I'm afraid for some people it's just a matter of well now I go to church. I used to didn't go to church, but now I've been baptized. I got to go to church, because if I don't go to church, they're going to withdraw from me. If that's our idea, then we've missed it. It's it's a new life. It's a new focus. It's a new purpose, and all of that will be found in God's Word. As we wrap up, I will go back to the questions. Sometimes I'm bad about introducing questions in the first part of the lesson on the slide, and I never come back to them, and we don't answer the questions. I think we've answered these through the lesson, but just to make sure, is the gift of the Holy Spirit the speaking in tongues? Well, the speaking in tongues, and that didn't come in the way I wanted it to. Actually, I, I deleted some stuff, I guess. The speaking in tongues was a confirmation and a way to communicate the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. But it wasn't the gift that the Holy Spirit was going to give. What about the ability to perform other miracles, healings, and, and things? Again, it was confirmation of what the Lord was doing through the apostles and those and the prophets who taught in the New, in the New Testament. But it itself is not the gift. It's just confirmation of the Word, which brings forth the gift. The next question, should the subject of the Holy Spirit be that confusing? No, it should not be. But our problem sometimes is we get so honed in on one verse or one text and we don't have it all together. We don't go back and look in the Old Testament and see, you know, what did these people understand when they heard something about the Holy Spirit being given? It shouldn't be confusing. And then what we've been talking about, what is the gift of the Holy Spirit? What does that mean? It means that we can have a new life. It means that we can be recreated in the image of Him who created us to walk the rest of our time here in this life as that renewed, restored person. We've been brought out of captivity, the bondage of sin. We've been released. And now we're free to walk in Christ. And that's a beautiful thing. But sadly, not everybody wants to receive that gift. Not everybody, when presented with an opportunity, is going to give their life to Christ so that they can be renewed. Some of them, sadly, like the people who came out of Egypt, don't realize how bad it was. And just a few days removed, a month removed from coming out of Egypt, they're thinking, oh, when we sat by the pots of meat and we were full, we had it so good back then. No, they didn't. It was terrible. But sometimes we look on our life in sin and we don't realize how how terrible it is. It's terrible now. What's more terrible is what's to come for those who remain in sin. And as we bring the lesson to a close, I just want to impress upon you that that life here in this world without God is going to be bad. It's going to be terrible. There's no hope. There's no peace. There's no true love. But it doesn't begin to compare with the life that is to come without God and eternity in hell. But you can escape that bondage. You can be freed from that. You can be renewed in the image of Him who created you if you're willing to submit to the Lord in baptism. We have water. 
Now, the Ethiopian eunuch asked Philip the question, look, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? I'll turn that question around to you. Look, here is water. What hinders you from being baptized? If you're here tonight and you're not a child of God, I urge you to seriously consider that question. And if we can help you in any way to come to make the decision to give your life to the Lord, then let us know what we can do to help you while we stand and sing.